Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. How do you view God? It's not a question we think about every day, but it affects everything in our life. How do you view God? What is he like? How would you describe him? How do you relate to him? Before we answer those questions today, I just want you to think about how you understand God and how that affects the way you relate to him. It has everything to do with where we're going to be in the scriptures today. You know, before I became a Christian, I really didn't know what to think about God. I would come to church and I'd see my grandparents worship. I'd see the whole congregation worship and I just didn't know what they was excited about. Uh, go to school and you'd talk to friends. Hey, we go to church. Okay. Hey, Corey, do you believe in God? And I'm sitting there and I'm answering it with my mind. Well, yeah, I guess I do. But then they asked me a question geared toward the heart and I'm like, you know, I, I really don't know. And I guess the thing that lingered in my mind in those days, and even now it still lingers, is can I really know God and does he care about me? Because I think when you really boil it down, isn't that what we think? Hey, can I really know God and does he really care about me? And, and what about the things that we see that we can't explain? What about the things that you and I experience that we don't understand, like why do bad things happen to people? For, forget about what kind of people they are. You know, you, you hear the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, but, but why do bad things happen to people, period? And, and especially people of faith, especially godly people. I mean, you know, you look at Job, and, and we, we learn about Job in the Bible. God says at the very beginning of his story, God says that here is Job. He is a righteous man. He fears God. He shuns evil. There's nobody on earth like him. God said that about Job. And then, as Danny illustrated, everything that God gave Job, that quick, he took away. In one day, Job lost everything. Cattle, herds, flocks, all of his possessions, and he was a very wealthy man. Not only that, he was blessed with ten kids. And they were all together, and a natural disaster happened, and all ten kids died in that tragedy. All of this happened in the same day. Job is minding his business, and all of a sudden, here comes a, a servant. Hey, I want to tell you something. All this bad stuff happened. I'm the only one alive to tell you, and, and here it is. And, and it's just one wave after another. Four different messengers came on just within minutes of each other and, and gave Job the worst news of his life. He lost everything. He absolutely lost everything. And then after that, he began to lose his health. He had these sores. He was in pain, and he, he, he felt alone. He felt abandoned, and he didn't understand why this was happening to him. Now, we've gone through a lot of Job already in the past uh, four weeks. We know that he had three friends that showed up, and for a week, they just gathered around him and didn't say a word. And then Job spoke. And once Job spoke, since he spoke his mind, the friends decided they'd speak their mind. And they went from having a discussion about, Job, why is this happening, to a debate. Well, you know, God treats the righteous one way and the wicked another way. And that debate grew into a dispute 
to where they thought that Job had done something really bad wrong and God was punishing him. And finally, Job says, look, I'm tired of talking to y'all. You're not helping me any. I want to take my case to God. I want God to show up and I want him to either vindicate, vindicate me, prove me right, or judge me and put me out of my misery. And at that point, everybody stops. And if you look there at the very end of Job 31, it says the words of Job are concluded because at that point, they're done talking. And today we're in Job 32. And I will say this, you've got to come back next week because God does show up. And it's going to be good. But today's message is Job 32. And there's this young man named Elihu. And he's been standing around seeing this whole scene. And he's heard what Job said. He's heard what the friends have said. And they've gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And now he's decided, you know what? I'm going to not hold my peace anymore. And Elihu is going to speak. And I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, uh, while Elihu said some of the same things as the other speakers, his purpose was different. He was not trying to prove that Job was a sinner, but that Job's view of God was all wrong. Elihu introduced a new truth into the debate, that God sends suffering, not necessarily to punish us for our sins, but God sends suffering to keep us from sinning and to make us better people. And that's what we're going to look at today. So what is your view of God? How do you relate to God? When you, when you think of God, how do you relate to Him? Is He just an, you know, um, a benevolent uh, old man on a throne that has this beard that's sort of like father time? He's been around for you know, ages and ages. I mean, how, how do you, you know, picture God? How do you relate to God? Well, look, if you will, in Job 33... We, uh, we could look, but we're not. Elihu spans about four or five chapters, but I want to just focus in on a couple of things that he said. And it's in Job 33. Look in verse 18. This young man says this to Job in Job 33, verse 18. God spares his soul, referring to a sinner, from the pit. His life from crossing the river of death. A person may be disciplined on his bed with pain and constant distress in his bones, so that he detests bread, and his soul despises his favorite food. His flesh wastes away to nothing, and his unseen bones stick out. He draws near to the pit, and his life to the executioners. If there is an angel on his side, one mediator out of a thousand, to tell a person what is right for him, and to be gracious to him, and say, spare him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom." Then his flesh will be healthier than in his youth, and he will return to the days of his youthful vigor. He will pray to God, and God will delight in him. That person will see his face with a shout of joy, and God will restore his righteousness to him. He will look at men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, yet I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will continue to see the light. Certainly God does all these things two or three times to a person in order to turn him back from the pit so that he may shine with the light of life. In so many words, Elihu is saying, look, Job, you know, maybe you're looking at God all wrong and maybe you're not quite getting why you're suffering. Uh, 
do you realize that maybe God is sending suffering to keep you from sinning? Since you claim you haven't sinned, well, maybe he's sending all this to you so you won't sin. Now, that's tough medicine, isn't it? But that's what Elihu is saying. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, uh, I want you to turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians 12. Let's jump to the New Testament. Let's put this in our day and time. Does this kind of reasoning sound familiar? I, I would say yes, it does. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he has this uh, issue that he's praying about. You know, God, take this thorn in the flesh away. And it's in 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll uh, pick up in um, verse uh, 7. He says, uh, therefore, halfway through that verse, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. And so here is Paul saying that God allowed something to happen in my life that the devil wanted to exploit for his own purpose, uh, but God allowed it to happen. Why? So that I wouldn't exalt myself so I wouldn't be filled with pride, so I wouldn't ever become arrogant and look down my nose at someone else. And so Paul says, God allowed this to happen in my life. And he says about this, concerning this, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but God didn't take it away. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul says, so... Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So yeah, Paul is saying, look, there are times that maybe you experience some suffering and some pain in your life, and it's not that you're a bad person, it's not that you've done anything wrong, but maybe God is allowing it to happen so you really don't sin, so you don't cross a line and become really puffed up. Now, Mind you, this is not something that you can say that's absolute, that's going to be true in each and every case, but it's something that certainly could be a possibility in certain instances, in certain situations. And so here, uh, Elihu is saying God uses suffering to keep us from sinning. And then the second thing he mentions is that God uses suffering to make us better people. Look, if you will, in Job 36. Job chapter 36. And we'll pick up there in verse 8. Job 36 verse 8. Elihu continues, If people are bound with chains and trapped by the cords of affliction... God tells them what they have done and how arrogantly they have transgressed. He opens their ears to correction and tells them to repent from iniquity. If they listen and serve Him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in happiness. But if they do not listen, they will cross the river of death and die without knowledge. In other words, God uses suffering to make us better people. Now, I used to hear that growing up, didn't you? If it doesn't kill you, it makes you what? Yeah, you heard that too. Uh, it's tough medicine, isn't it? 
but it can. If it doesn't kill you, it will make you stronger. God can use suffering to make us better people. It's not what we would choose. I mean, it's not the way I would want it done. How many times have you gone through a situation and you look back at it months later or years later and you go, boy, I, I'm, I don't want to do that again. But then there comes a day when you look back at it and go, I, I wouldn't do it again, but I wouldn't take anything for what I learned. And that's the, the takeaway there. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see that principle in the New Testament as well. In uh, Hebrews chapter 12, you know the faith chapter in Hebrews 11. And then in chapter 12, we're, we're running this race of faith. And in Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses, all the ones that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, uh, surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And it's a quote from the Old Testament. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our fathers, discipline us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it, that is God, for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. And then it says this, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. And later on, however, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God can use suffering to discipline us and make us better people. It's not what you and I would choose, that's for sure, but God certainly can use it. And so Elihu is introducing these ideas into the discussion because they went round and round, back and forth, and this thought has not been entered into the equation. But Job won't bite on it. Job won't say a word. Job will just sit there. He's tired of listening to people. He's waiting to hear from God. And yet the question today is how do you view God? And that's what I want to look at, look at in the short time we have together today. Because when you begin to look around at life, it doesn't always make sense. Why do some people tend to get away with it and nobody cares and they seem to be just fine and then you see people that really love God and they're trying to do the right thing and they're just struggling, struggling, struggling. Maybe they're suffering and there's a lot of pain in their life and you just look at that and you go, what is wrong with this picture? Why is that? And it can make us question God. It can make us wonder what's really going on in the world. It can really, if it gets under your skin, it can really do a, a work in, in your heart and your mind. And so what I want to do uh, for a moment is to help you examine your view of God. And I want to give you three questions to help you uh, examine your view of God. 
the first question is this, who is Jesus Christ? Now, why do I start there? Because Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was the Son of God. And so if we want to understand God, we need to look at Jesus. And so many people really don't know what to do with Jesus. It reminds me of a story in John chapter 4 that I want to mention. You probably have heard the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus went to Samaria and he was thirsty and he went to a well. It was in the middle of the day. And here come a woman at the well. Now, just so you know, that was a little unusual. You might go, well, what's unusual about that? Well, in the Middle East, because it's so hot, you only go to a well early in the morning and late in the evening. You want to avoid the sun and the heat as much as possible. And yet, here it is in the middle of the day when it's really, really hot, and here comes this one woman by herself to the well. That was unusual, too. For protection and security purposes, they always travel together. And here she is by herself in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. And then here's Jesus. And then he does the unthinkable. He talks to her. And you might go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, he was a Jew. And she was a Samaritan. And the Bible tells us in John 4 that they really didn't, they didn't mix. They didn't associate with each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, the Jews were God's chosen covenant people. And the Gentiles were all, all of the people that weren't Jews. They were outsiders. And then the Samaritans were considered, you know, a mix of the two. And so the Jews really looked down their noses at the Samaritans. And here is this woman, and she looks at Jesus, and she sees a man. But not just a man, she sees a Jewish man. And the defenses go up. As soon as he says something to her, she's like, what are you talking to me? I'm going to put it in today's lingo. What, what are you talking to me? You're, you're, you're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why, why are you talking to me? And so to her, Jesus is just a man, but he's a Jewish man. And that's an X on her list. And then he begins to engage her. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water and you'd never thirst again. Wow. He sees her heart. He knows her need. Matter of fact, he knows all about her story. She just doesn't know that he knows yet. And so, as you read that story in John 4, you will find that he sort of scratched her itch. There's a need in her life, and she's like, you mean I'd never thirst again? You mean I wouldn't have to come to this well? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Then reality kicks in. How are you going to give me that kind of water? You don't even have a bucket. And all that's going through her head. And so Jesus cuts to the chase. He sees her defenses. He knows the cultural norms of that day and time. And he says, I tell you what, why don't you just go get your husband and then we'll sit down and talk. And that's a whole other issue. She says, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus says, you know, you're right. You've had five and you're living with one now and he's not your husband either. Woo, ouch, right? He read her mail. She looks at him and says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, hello. And so now all of a sudden, she's 
growing in her awareness of who is Jesus. And you know what? We have to do the same. He's a man. He's a Jewish man. He came from the lineage of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was Israel. And maybe he's a prophet. How does he know this stuff about me? And so all of a sudden the disciples come. You can tell they've interrupted something. And she leaves. She even left her bucket. Certainly she was moved. Perhaps she was disturbed. And all of a sudden this woman, which by the way, she comes in the middle of the day. Why? Because she's got a reputation. And she's been tired of the stares and the glares and the looks from all the other women. So she comes in the middle of the day so she doesn't have to feel like an outcast. She just comes, gets her business done and leaves and nobody is none the wiser. This woman that has gone to great lengths, I mean in the heat of the day, to avoid all people because she knows she's got a reputation and she knows that everybody else knows. This woman now runs to town. And she says, hey, 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 hey! Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Because as you look at the rest of the story, before the disciples came up, she says, you know, you're a prophet. Let me ask you a religious question. You, the Jews, worship over there on that mountain. And we Samaritans, we worship over here on this mountain. And the implication is, who's right and who's wrong? And Jesus looks at her and says, you know what? A day is coming and it's here right now. Then that worshiping over here or worshiping over there is not going to make a bit of difference because God is looking for worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. And she goes, well, I don't get it all. I don't understand it all. But one of these days, the Messiah I've heard is coming and He'll explain it to us. And that's when Jesus said, you're talking to me. And that's when she left the bucket. And that's when she ran to town and said, come meet a man who told me everything. I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? You see, who is Jesus is a critical question when it comes to your view of God. And she looked at Jesus. He's a man. He's a Jewish man. He's a man of God. He's a prophet. He's the Messiah. All of us have to come to our own conclusion. But that's the process, that's the steps you take to arrive at the answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? And then the second question is, who are you? Because once you know who Jesus Christ is, then you're going to be confronted with this awesome, holy God. And you're going to realize not only who he is, but you're going to realize who you are. And he read her mail. He knew every single thing about her. And yet he was offering her a gift, living water. If you drink this, you'll never thirst again. You won't be running to another man. You won't be running to another relationship. You won't be trying to fill it with something else. You'll just be full of God. Who are you? When you realize that God knows everything about you, and yet he still loves you, that sort of makes me tremble. 
what kind of God who not only loves us and he knows so much about us and yet he's willing to offer this free gift. That's just amazing to me. So who is Jesus Christ and who are you? And the third and last question, based on what Jesus has done for all of us, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Jesus offered this woman, regardless of her past, regardless of the life she had lived, he offered her something. If you will drink this living water, you will never thirst again. Well, how do I get this living water? Come to me. If you believe in me, then you will be able to drink from the well of salvation, and the Holy Spirit will just well up in your life, and you'll learn what it means to find satisfaction in God alone. Only Him. And that's what you and I are confronted with today. It goes back to this situation with Elihu and Job. Job had sat with his friends. He spoke his mind. They spoke theirs. They went back and forth. They argued. Nobody could fix anything. They couldn't restore Job's possessions. They couldn't bring his kids back from the dead. It was still a hot mess. And there he is with all this pain and suffering and heartache in his life. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell Job that can fix it? What are you going to do to change what happened? Absolutely nothing. So they quit talking about it. But one question lingered. What are you going to do now? You ever been through a tough situation and you, you do what needs to be done and you've got the support, you've got the prayers, you've got the love, you've got the family, you've got the friends, and then the unspoken question is, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? And that's what I want to say to you today. I don't know where, where you're at right now. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're dealing with, per se. But what are you going to do now? Before you answer that question, how do you view God? Do you believe He's for you or against you? Do you believe that He loves you? Do you believe that He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that He knows everything about you? And believe it or not, He loves you anyway. Just like that woman at the well. He knew everything about her. He loved her anyway, and He offered her something that could change her life. It's changed mine. It's changed many of y'all's. I want to wrap this up. In John 4, 39, as Paul Harvey would say, this is the rest of the story. The woman runs to the town and says, Hey, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. What happened there? The Bible says in John 4, 39, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of what the woman said when she testified, He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked Him to stay with them, and He stayed there two days. And many more believed because of what He said. Not what she said, but what He said. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Even for Samaritans. Isn't that good? Today, you've got a decision to make. What are you going to do? You may be going through suffering. You may be going through sorrow. And you may be wondering, why, why, why? 
Why me? Why now? What for? How come? All these questions are going through your mind. And maybe you've had your powwow with God. Maybe you've had your discussions about it. Maybe you've had your debates and maybe you've even had some crosswords with some friends that really meant well but didn't really know what to say, but they tried. The real issue is not you and your friends. The real issue is you and God. How do you view God? And before you answer that question, realize that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he loves you. He was a man, he is a man, but he's so much more than a man. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that God promised. He came, he lived, he died. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that you and I deserved. He took our place. Three days later, he rose again. And now he offers the free gift of eternal life to anyone who's willing to come to him and trust and follow Jesus. And he offers the gift of living water. And when you drink from his well, you'll never thirst again. That's his words, not mine. Maybe today you need to quit asking why, how come, what for, and come to the one who, as Steve said, when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Because God is a good God. And he loves all of you so much. There's going to be times in life you go through things you don't understand. And you know what? Why is a great question, but it's a foxhole too. It'll get you sinking deep in muck and mire and you can't, you can't find a satisfactory answer. Why? Why this? Why now? How come? What for? Ultimately, I don't mean this wrong, but who cares? There's so many things in life that we can't explain. There's so many things in life we don't understand. But don't miss the meaning of the big picture. There's a God in heaven who loves you. And he sent his son Jesus to die for you. What are you going to do with that? Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.